This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. On today's future award-winning Moranalytics podcast, episode 177, I'm going to have a conversation with my buddy, former Bishop Timon High School, former... University at Buffalo, and now current Kansas City Chiefs defensive end, Damone Harris. Damone was active on Sunday for the first time since being signed by the Chiefs a couple weeks ago. And not only was he active, but he was out there playing a bunch of defensive snaps, lined up going against Tom Brady, arguably the greatest quarterback in NFL history. I'll talk to Damone about what it felt like to be out there Sunday playing against Tom Brady and the Super Bowl defending champion New England Patriots. Kansas City went on the road and beat New England on Sunday. So I'll get to Mo's reaction to that. If you're a Kansas City Chiefs fan, it's a good opportunity to get to know more about Demon. And of course, if you're a Buffalo guy and you've followed his career, great chance to find out what Demon has been up to. It's been a very, very busy and interesting year for the kids. So I'll talk to him. I'm also going to talk to Jeff Boyd from the 716 Sports Podcast. We'll talk some Bills and Sabres stuff today. Of course, the Bills, disappointing, but not season-defining loss Sunday against Baltimore. And the Sabres, a decently encouraging West Coast road trip that just got wrapped up. All that and more coming up. Before I get to that, though, I want to let you know that today's show is being supported by Pulse Cellular. Today's lifestyle is the best in wireless. And with Pulse Cellular, you had the best options available. Switch to Pulse Cellular for unlimited talk, text, and high-speed data. Coast-to-coast with no contracts, no credit checks, no overage fees. One line for $65, or you can get four lines for just $45 each. That includes hotspot, Wi-Fi calling, and up to 50 gigs per line. For all you travelers out there, they got you covered in Canada and Mexico. Plus, text and data in over 210 countries worldwide, all with the best phones, or you can bring your own. That's pretty awesome. Get the best user experience on mobile at PulseCellular.com. All right, let's do this. Let's do it. If you're a loser, tune in and you'll be a winner. It's the Moranalytics Podcast. Talking Buffalo sports, Yankees, WWE, 80s music, and pop culture. And now, here's your host, Patrick Moran. All right, everyone, how you doing? What's going on? Welcome to episode 177, Moranalytics Podcast. Thanks, as always, for listening. Going to have Jeff Boyd on in just a few. We'll talk a little Buffalo Bills, Buffalo Sabres, but right away here at the top, I'm not going to waste any time. On the line, I got my man, Kansas City Chiefs. I got to get used to saying that. Kansas City Chiefs defensive end. My guy, Damone Harris. What's going on, buddy? How we doing? How we doing? Well, I'm not doing as good as you are. <laughs> but, but, but I'm doing good. 
I'll tell you, we're going to kind of, here's the deal. Buffalo people know enough about you and Kansas City fans are getting to learn a little bit about you. So the purpose of this interview, right. those Chiefs fans, we're going to give them a chance to know more about you. Buffalo fans, you might've heard some of this before, but oh, well, I'll tell you what people have not heard before. I don't care where you're from. I'm sitting, we were talking about this before we started taping. So Sunday afternoon, I'm sitting on my couch. I just watched the Bills Ravens game, tough loss for Buffalo. And like every Buffalo Bills fan, I'm rooting against the Patriots and they're playing the Kansas City Chiefs and Damone Harris on that field, getting reps, lots of reps, making plays. What a somebody who's known you since you were in high school. What, what an unbelievable right. surreal moment that was for both me and my son Shane yesterday getting right. to watch you. Man, you it's gotta be an incredible feeling for you right now. It has to be. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I say that's an incredible feeling. I mean, still to myself, I haven't reached or accomplished having even scratched the service of what I really want to do um, in this league, but you know, it was a good step in the right direction against the Patriots. You know, was, we knew it was going to be an execution game and assignment football, and they just count on you making mistakes. So um, as far as that, I felt like I did my job. I mean, I had a couple bad plays, but, you know, I'm learning. And, you know, my first real game experience, and, yeah, it was it was definitely an experience. And to come out with a win is uh, it's even better. I want to spend a little bit of time, and we won't spend, like, a lot of time on each subject, but I kind of want to – chronicle your journey a little bit to get to where you are. It's been a very mm -hmm. whirlwind 2019 specifically for you. Right. But even, right. even before that, and again, some people might be listening to this interview because I have had you on the podcast before. I'll put a link in the show notes to that in the archives. If you want to hear the entire Damone Harris story. This will be a little bit more of a cliff notes version, but here's the deal. So Damone never really played football until his junior year of high school. And the crazy thing is a lot of players that make it to the stage that you've made it to the ultimate, the NFL, their mm -hmm. star players are all state, all County players in high school. Right. You right. were kind of even, you know, going back to high school, you weren't even necessarily a star mm -hmm. player. I'm using air quotes here, a star player. Right. Um, right. And nothing is ever, and I'm sure you've learned to appreciate this in life. And I think it's helped you get to where you've gotten to, but, Nothing was gifted to you in life. Nothing was yeah. handed to you. You didn't come up with a bunch of accolades in high school. And right. even we'll talk about the recruiting thing in college in a second. But it's just like my point is even going back to high school, man, that has always been your thing. And again, I've known you since high school. You've been a grinder right. and a very hard worker going all the way back to high school. Right. Yeah, no doubt. I think that's what it all boils down to. I mean, not to say that those top guys coming out don't work hard, but you know, you see it a lot of times. You see these first, second, third round draft picks get cut after a couple of years because, I mean, a lot of them don't know how to work. A lot of them have been spoon fed since they were kids and tell, told they're, they're the best things to slice bread. And, you know, when it comes and boils down to it, when adversity hits them, they don't know how to work. So that's always when, um, you know, I can catch guys and, you know, win jobs. But for me, it was more like just, you know, I felt like I was always behind. So I would always put in extra work. And then I found that no one, putting in the work I was putting in, then that just made me want to work even harder and, you know, just, you know, keep working at each level. And, you know, I still got a lot of left. I still got a lot of work to do, but, you know, I'm heading in the right direction. Sure. And when it comes 
going all the way back to high school. So you play your junior year. You're not even a starter as a junior. You start right, yeah. as a I senior. Yeah. You start as a yeah, senior. You get hurt yeah. as a senior. Maybe right. in part because of that, you're not recruited. Again, you're mm-hmm. not the only person in the history of football that has went this route to get to the NFL, but you know as right. well as anybody, it definitely makes that uh, destination a lot harder for sure. So you're going out right. of high school. You're not recruited. You don't have scholarships. You actually are a walk-on to the university mm-hmm. at Buffalo. What was that process like for you getting into high school as you're in your senior year? You know that you right. want to keep playing football. You know what right. you, you know that you have what it takes inside you, even if other coaches and recruiters out there aren't seeing right. that. What was that process like for you at that time? Right. So, I mean, at that time, you know, like I said, my, like you said, my junior year, I didn't play until my junior year. And when I came out, I, was, I wasn't good. I didn't play until the last two games of my junior year. Um, I remember playing against Joe's when they still had Chad Kelly and um, I think Franny's when they still had a kill Lynch. And those are the last two games of my junior year. And going into my senior year, I played about four or five games and then missed half my senior season with a high ankle. And, you know, I'm at a small school, so we didn't have the best like, training staff. We, we have a trainer come to our school once a week and things like that. So I really didn't get healthy. Um, and then, I mean, I jumped at the opportunity. Uh, my head coach in high school, his brother-in-law was on the staff at UB and they just shot him on film and um, said, this guy's real raw, but he's athletic. So we'll give him a shot and then, you know, give him a walk on opportunity. But I mean, I always knew within myself, like I always had the most confidence just because not, not me being proud or, or cocky or anything like that. It's more, I knew what I was willing to sacrifice and knew the, the work I was willing to put in. Um, and not a lot of guys are willing to do those things. So I knew if, I had to get an opportunity that I was going to work and make the best out of it. Now you go to college and we'll just uh, jump through most of that. The, uh, the moral of the story is Damone goes from being a walk-on player to a scholarship player, to a starter, to a very good starter, to a guy who's mm-hmm. on the precipice of being drafted. Now going into the NFL right. draft last year in 2018, you weren't sure if you were going to get drafted. There's a lot of mixed singles out there. People, other teams were talking to you. Turns out that you didn't right. get drafted, but you also didn't. In fact, the draft wasn't even over before you started getting phone calls, knowing where yeah. you might end up being. But what was that process like for you as a, a young man at this point, coming out of college, getting ready for the NFL, and the realization that whether you got drafted or whether you didn't, you knew at the very least you were at least going to get an opportunity to, to right. stick out an NFL team? Well, like you said, I mean, the draft, it really didn't matter to me. I mean, of course you want to get drafted, but. I mean, if you know you're going to be a late-round draft pick anyway, it's better sometimes going undrafted because you get to pick a situation and then things happen and guys move around anyway. You know, college football is like checkers and, and the NFL is like chess. Right. You just move pieces around and, you know, it's more strategical in that aspect. Money, everything, all those factors um, factor into that. But me not getting drafted wasn't that big a deal. Like I said, I treated like just when I was a walk-on. Everything's a process. I took it day by day. You're just at a higher level of doing it, you know. And obviously, if someone has saw some in me to get to this level, they obviously know that I could do it. And I've already ha- always had a self-belief in myself. So it was a matter of just now, you know, versus being at Buffalo in time and being the walk-on and not having the resources now in the NFL, um, I have access to resources that I didn't have before, you know. So I'm able to get better and do different things that I wasn't able to do before. Now, do you think that maybe because of the route that you took to get to the NFL, going all the way back to high school, where again, you weren't a star player and you had to work yeah. extra hard to get every little thing. In some right. ways, that might have actually benefited you in the long run right. once you did get into the NFL. Now, selfishly for me, 
I moved down to the Tampa area. So I was really, really excited when you signed with Tampa Bay and, and, and um, ultimately, right. so you go to camp and you mm-hmm. have a very good camp and you end up mm-hmm. making the practice squad. What was right. that like for you at that moment? And again, I, I know you well enough to know that you don't get too high. You don't get too low. You kind of keep an even keel right. with things, but that right. dream is becoming now a reality that, Hey man, I'm in the NFL. Um, yeah, it was, it was, uh, you know, it was a sign of relief just to know you have a job, you know, cause at the end of that process, a lot of guys, especially in my position on draft that just, you know, end up with a lot of job, you know, and for them to even give me a job, you know, and being on a practice squad is somewhere to start. It was just like my freshman year, I was a walk on and I started on scout team. Right. I just saw it as the same thing as that. But, um, yeah, I mean, coming out of training camp, I was more disappointed in myself because I set the goal to make the roster. That was my goal. So I'm not going to sit here and act like I was happy about it. I was upset more with myself because I always hold myself to a higher standard. Um, so I made the practice squad, though, and ended up getting called up about week five, six of the season and spent some time on the active roster and played, in, I think, two games. But, you know, I mean, it, I was disappointed in myself just because I know the work I put in. And, you know, that's why I came on my second year with to leave no doubt. I mean, I me mean, making that 53 man roster. With uh, it being your rookie year in 2018, what was the process like for you adjusting to the NFL? And I'm not just talking physically, obviously. They're bigger, right. they're faster, they're stronger. Everybody knows that. But right. I'm just talking about the lifestyle, the mindset of being in the NFL, mm-hmm. the good that comes with it, maybe some of right. the, the pitfalls that could come with being an NFL right. player. What was that process like? Did it take a while for you to you to be able to to adjust to being in the NFL in terms of that? Um, definitely, definitely. Um, you know, you have, you know, different resources you're being exposed to, different things you're being exposed to, and it's a lot. It all happens really, really fast for a, for a young kid coming out of college, you know. So, I mean, I finally got a chance to just sit back and exhale and just kind of really soak everything in. And, um, you know, yeah, adjusting was – adjusting was it wasn't as hard as I, you would think it was. I mean, it depends on the person. It boils down to what kind of person you are. Me, I'm always, you know, a s- small hometown Buffalo kid, so I'm just – you know, all I know is work. So, I mean, regardless of what I have or don't have, I'm going to work. So, um, yeah, it was definitely adjustment. Just the practices, the the schedule. It's like it's a job now. It becomes like a nine to five. People think <laughs> like us NFL players just sometimes just go in and roll around and, and lift a little weight or practice for an hour and go home. No, like we're in the building from seven to five or seven to six. Like we're, we work a long job just like, you know, normal people. It just happens that football is that job. So. You know, just getting um, adjusted to the pro side of it, just being a pro in every aspect, taking care of your body, like things I've done before, but obviously I have um, access to two different things now. So you spend your entire rookie year in Tampa, split between the practice squad, you're active for a couple games on the 53, mm-hmm. and then going into the offseason. So Tampa Bay makes coaching change. Bruce Arians brought mm-hmm. in the um, mm-hmm. defensive scheme is different right. than what it was for you as a rookie. And right. I remember very well. Now, obviously, you believe in yourself, the people closest to you, they believe in you, but mm-hmm. I would absolutely consider you making the 53 man roster an underdog. That that's not something that was projected. Oh, of course. I yeah. know this for a fact, brother, because I'm going to tell you right now on my tweet deck, I had your name queued up all summer. I started following every Tampa Bay beat writer that I could, that I didn't know any of them. And all of a sudden I'm looking them up. I'm finding them. Mm-hmm. I'm following people on the athletic on SB Nation, Pewter Report, yeah. you name it. Here's my point. Every single, and I swear to you, every single 53-man roster projection from the start of training camp 
through the last preseason game, none of them had the name Damone Harris on them. None of them. Right. Not one. Right. Not one. <laughs> you and you just sit back and laugh at things like that because you know. <laughs> does it right? I'm, I'm shit, man. I'm I'm concerned. I'm, you're not obviously. You you right. make you stun because sometimes you got people making those decisions and making those projections that have never even played the game before. So if you listen to everything that's out there as a player or watch everything that's out there, you'll get lost in the sauce in, in an instant. You know. So I'm right. Mean, well, I know you well enough to know that you weren't surprised that you made the right. fifty three man because no, your preparation and your mindset is that that's what you were going to do. Having said right. that, there was a lot of people who covered the Tampa Bay Buccaneers again. None of them had you on the projections. So for you to, right. I know it's not why you do things, not why you work hard, but to make right. that 53-man roster, it had to be gratifying to you because I'm sure that at some point, oh, yeah. if you didn't read it yourself, I'm sure people were you know, saying, well, you know, this kid, maybe he'll make the practice yeah. squad again. He's not going to make yeah, the 53. Yeah. So they kind of feel yeah. good to say, you know what? You're wrong. Right. I mean, you know, but that's not what you do it for. I don't do it to prove people wrong. I could care less so about what other people think outside of, you know, my circle. It's all about my family. It's about giving the glory to God, things like that for me. I mean, I, I know my process and I trust my process, you know, and I, and I felt myself making strides in training camp that other people didn't see. And I know even going into, you know, training camp, I, I said I'm going to leave no doubt that I'm going to leave it all on film, that I'm going to make this 53-man roster. And if I don't, I'm going to be able to look myself in the mirror and live with myself because I know I left it all on the line, and which I did. That's what it was like when I got the – I didn't get the call and I made the roster. It was just like, okay, because it was like I expect that of myself, you know? It's right. not more of I'm being shocked. I expect it of myself. This would start what I said, a whirlwind. It really has truly become that over the last few months. So you're on the Tampa Bay 53 – um, mm-hmm. You spend the first four games there. You're active for a game. And then mm-hmm. it was uh, Saturday, October 5th. Before, before Tampa Bay traveled to New Orleans, you were released and then brought back mm-hmm. to the practice squad two days later. That was your mm-hmm. first real life, was that I should say, your first real life taste of how much the NFL is a business. Right, right. I mean, it opens up your eyes and everything. I mean, but you know, I think technically, since I've been in the league, I've been cut four times. I mean, it was the motions of practice squad is technically being good, me being cut. So it's like, I mean, it, it, it's, it's to a point, like, no matter who you are, I've seen Gerald McCoy get cut. I've seen, you know what I mean? It's not a matter of if, it's when. Right. You know what I mean? So it's like, you have to learn how to get cut like a pro, just like you have to learn everything else to be like a pro. It's nothing, as long as you look, can look yourself in the mirror and say that you put in the work in and that there's something that's happening that's out of your hands, then I can live with myself. So, and, and I did that, you know, and, you know, like I said, the way, the way I protect myself and the way you protect yourself in this league as an undrafted player is film and preseason film. And that's all I did. I mean, I went out there and left it all online, the preseason film and other teams seen that. That's why the, the day I got cut from Tampa Bay, I was in, I was in Baltimore that night they flew me out that same night. So, you know, other teams, prestigious teams know that I can play football, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And that's what's going to be my next question. So Tampa has a trip, you go to London. And then after that, you end up getting released from the organization, but it's like, you didn't have, even if I'm sure it was no tough. effect on the game. Yeah. No effect on the game. Okay. <laughs> right. <laughs> but my point is it, it didn't even have like, 
it didn't really it have didn't time to sense. set in because you already yeah. you were already going to be having a tryout with Baltimore. That leads right, that to the night, yep. Now I know from speaking with you before that you've said even I've seen it in news reports that you felt like that wasn't your best workout in part because the travel and being tired. Mm -hmm. I want mm -hmm. all right, I want the Cliff Notes version. We won't tell the whole story, but you the ring story that went viral. All right, everybody mm -hmm. Saw that mm -hmm. for people who may, especially Kansas City Chiefs fans who may not know about that now, tell people listening what happened that week when you went to Baltimore with the engagement ring. Yeah, okay. So, to make a long story short, I just, um, you know, went to Baltimore for my workout that Tuesday night. I got flown out and then, you know, I had to bring my engagement ring with me because I was planning for months to uh, propose to my now fiance, Ariana. But I obviously got cut, so that kind of threw things off balance and went there, ended up uh, doing the workout, uh, little or no sleep all that whole week, and um, ended up losing the ring, left in the hotel. A lot of crazy things happened. Had to go back, back and forth between Florida, Baltimore. Now, and they, now when, I, when I was in Orlando driving to Tampa, um, they found the ring in the hotel and the Baltimore Ravens overnighted it and um, yeah, things like that happened. And, you know, I was just grateful because by the time the end of that week, at the end of it all, I had a job with the Ravens and um, I had the ring to propose to my now fiance. And Ari, by the way, for everyone listening, sweetheart, beautiful girl inside and out. I know her well. Mm -hmm. She's a great person. So you do, you get signed by Baltimore. Now you're on the practice squad. So again, Damone's Harris unemployment was short-lived. All right. So right. Now you're in Baltimore. What was that experience? Now, again, you're only there a couple of weeks, but again, having yeah. a chance even to just spend a couple of weeks with a franchise like Baltimore, what was that experience like for you? Oh, it was great. I mean, I was there for approximately a month, you know, I had to be, got to be around Lamar and, and Mark and uh, Earl, all those guys. And uh, it was just a great group of guys, baby, Michael Pierce, um, a lot of those guys, Jalen Ferguson, all those guys, great guys, man. Great team, you know, it's just that, I mean, it just came down that um, the supply was just higher than the demand. And, you know, when I came in there and it was an injury to uh, McPhee and, you know, thought I had a chance to maybe get activated on that roster. But, you know, maybe a couple weeks later, our room got really full. So I was like, well, <laughs> kind of got to make a decision for myself. And me and my agent had already um, turned down some opportunities from other 53-man rosters. So. Um, we just decided because we didn't want to go to a team that maybe is struggling as a new face next year because we never know what that situation could be. So we decided to, you know, when the Chiefs offer came to the table, we decided to take it and, you know, happy we did. I was going to ask you that next. What kind of was like that process? So you're on the Baltimore practice squad. Then the right. Did you have any indication before it happened that the Kansas City Chiefs were no, interested I in adding you to the 53? Yeah, no idea. No idea. Honestly, just in a, um, a regular what was a Tuesday meeting. Mm -hmm. He goes in a regular Tuesday meeting uh, with the Ravens, just going over the game plan. Cause I think I forget who we were playing that week. I think we were playing the Rams that week. Yeah. Going over Jared Goff and, and the Rams and get a text while I'm in the meetings at about two 30 that, you know, chiefs want me on the 53 and agent was like, you gotta make a decision. And I said, yeah. And I was on a flight. I went straight from work in Baltimore to a flight in Kansas city. Still had, Baltimore Raven gear on. <laughs> I didn't go home. So yeah, flight, flight. They told me at about three o'clock, I was on a flight at six. Tell people listening right now what it's like to go. A lot of people don't understand all the intimate aspects that come 
with being a professional right. athlete and how quickly things could change for you guys, whether it's a trade, right. uh, getting cut, right. things that you don't necessarily control. So you go right. in like, what, I don't know, maybe six, seven weeks or so, you're living in Tampa. Mm -hmm. Now you got to go to Baltimore. Yep. And yeah, three different cities, three different cities. Right. And, and now it's Kansas mm -hmm. City. And that's probably, mm -hmm. it's got to be to some extent uh, very hectic for you in terms of off the field stuff. I'm sure, obviously, you're able to right. focus and do your job on the field. But off the field, right. that's a lot of freaking moving around, man. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it was tough um, simply for the fact that I didn't have my fiance with me. She's in Buffalo. She's in school for the semester. So all this moving stuff, packing, unpacking, shipping my car all over the place. Um, I had to do that all myself. And, you know, it just taught me, you know, grow up and take it on the chin and, you know, be a man. This is what men do. This is how grown ups, you know, things happen in life that you can't necessarily control. But, you know, I couldn't pass up the opportunity from the Chiefs. And then, um, honestly, you know, like I said, things happen in this business aspect that, that fans don't realize. Things that don't even actually have to do with actual football. Like, you know, I mean, a, a, a move or a cut, someone gets cut has to do sometimes with money that you can't afford the player or, you know, getting traded. Just, you know, like I said, the NFL is chess, so they're just moving pieces around, you know. Right. No question about it. So now you're in Kansas City, a couple weeks, this Sunday, you're active for the first time. And not only are you active, you get extensive action. You're out there. I saw um, the stats. You played 18 snaps on defense Sunday this is what I want to ask you, man. And I, I mean, I, I'm pretty sure I know what your answer is going to be, but I'm going to ask it anyway. When you're in the sports media, whether it's broadcasting, journalism, whatever, and you start covering a professional team, I feel like more often than not, there's kind of an adjustment where you go from being a fan of a team or fan of players and you get a, I don't want to say necessarily starstruck, but you, you're like, wow, man, this is, I'm talking to Jerry Rice. You know what I mean? You, you got to get that right, mindset right. and you got to get rid of it. Cause now you got a job right. to do. Exactly. I've, again, oh, as, yeah. some, as somebody who's known you since you were in high school, coming home in Orchard Park, hanging out with uh, my nephew and, and playing Xbox and stuff, probably, right probably against the Patriots. <laughs> now you're on the football field. You're in Foxborough. Right. You're on the field. You're lined up against a first mm -hmm. round draft pick at tackle, trying to get after Tom Brady. That does right. does do you ever stop for even just a, a second and say? Holy crap, man! This is really surreal. I mean, um, I mean, I'm extremely blessed. Don't get me wrong, but I mean, you have to come to the realization to know yourself as a competitor. And I mean, you're looking across at Tom Brady, but at the same time, you gotta look yourself in the mirror and be like, "I'm Damone Harris. I'm so and so." You know what I mean? Right. And it takes. It, it's not being like I said. It's not about being prideful. It's just about like, like I said, trusting your work and know, trusting what you've done to get to this point. Like. I'm not out here by mistake. Like, it's not like someone made a mistake and rolled the dice and be like, just throw them out there. You know, I'm there because I work for it, you know? So, you know, I feel like I belong amongst these guys. I deserve to be out there, you know? So, you know, and I'm, and I'm willing to work for whatever I get. So, you know, having Tom Brady, I mean, shook his hand after the game was pretty cool experience at the same time. You know, he was yesterday, he was, you know, the person I was going up against. So I can't see you as Tom Brady. I see you as a regular quarterback that I'm trying to get to. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. No, I hear you. Speaking of quarterbacks, by the way, your quarterback, Patrick Mahomes, one of the best young right. quarterbacks in football. Now, I'm not no sure doubt. if you got to see it because, I don't know, you might have been actually been on the field because they were on the sidelines. But I've watched a lot of Chiefs games over the last couple of years because I'm a big Patrick Mahomes fan. He was right. really emotional and passionate on the sideline during an offensive huddle near the bench. I don't know if you got a chance to see that or not. 
But I mean, he was yelling. Yeah. He was going. You could tell, yeah. especially after Kansas City lost last year to AFC Championship, how badly you guys wanted this game on Sunday. It was very evident, just even by watching the emotion on guys on television, how bad Kansas City wanted this game. Oh, right. No doubt. I mean, Pat's a very, you know, um, emotional guy when it comes to, um, not in a bad way, but he just, he's passionate about the game of football. He loves to play the game of football, just like we all do. You know, I've grown to love it, even though I had a late start in it. And, you know, the Patriots are marked men, you know, in the league. You know, they're champions, repeated champions, quote unquote, dynasty, everyone says. So, you know, when you're a marked man, everyone wants to, you know, beat the marked men, you know. So, yeah, that's that's all it is, you know. And, you know, the last from last year, you can obviously see it in guys' face that, you know, it stung. And, you know, they wanted to get the opportunity to get back and beat them at their place. And, you know, I think that was really special. I don't think – I think I saw some stat that there wasn't a young quarterback, like, as young as Pat that hasn't beat the Patriots at home since, like, 2000 or something. So that's really incredible. Uh, let me ask you this. On a personal level, I know you. I know you're not satisfied with how you played Sunday. You're already talking oh, about the God. bad plays you made and that you could definitely mm -hmm. play a lot better. But does it right. feel good on a personal level that, again, you've been in the NFL now, this is your second season, but this was the most extensive action you saw, and you had a couple tackles in to mm -hmm. be able to contribute again, knowing that I know you, you're not satisfied, but just knowing right. that you did help in a positive way contribute to beating right. New England, that's got to be a gratifying feeling for you on a personal level, a, a sense of accomplishment, a milestone one. I'm sure that you got many bigger ones set going forward in the future, right. but that's definitely got to be a nice little notch on the belt. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no doubt. You know, you, you always want to be a part of, you know, something special. And I think we did something special yesterday and beating the Patriots at home. But for me, myself personally, with anything, I give myself 24 hours, uh, 24 hour rule. I call it good, bad, or indifferent. Anything that happens, I just give it 24 hours and then let it go. So, you know, and just move on to the next thing, because I feel like success and failure has to be treated as two in the two in the same. You know, you just have to keep working because, you know, success comes and, and you got people talking in your ear. Oh, you're this. You're that. You're so great. You're so this. You're so that people get complacent. And that's where I think a lot of these like high draft picks get some like they get complacent and you, and you see them getting cut because, you know, all the success goes to their head. And the same token, failure can also get to a player too, you know, and get them down. That's why I stay try to stay so even kill and, you know, give myself that 24-hour rule with anything. Yeah. So now the Kansas City Chiefs started slow. Three in a row now, though, for your last five healthier team. Right. That's probably the most important thing, Patrick, getting healthier. The issues that yeah. seem to be plaguing Kansas City, are, it seems to be at least on the right track towards being fixed. And this looks like a team very dangerous like the Kansas City Chiefs of last year. Right, right. Yeah, we, you know, we're a contender. We're a legit contender. And, you know, um, you know, we, we showed that, I feel like, last night. And, you know, moving forward, we just want to continue to show that, you know, we can be a legit contender in the AFC. And, you know, you got some, some uh, you just got to finish strong this season and, you know, clinch the AFC West and see what happens, you know, get in the mix. Everyone just wants to be in the dance. That's it. You just want to be in the dance and, you see what happens from there. Yeah, to win the dance, you got to get there. And Kansas City will be there. Last couple of things here. For fans listening, for Kansas City Chiefs fans anyway, how's life been for you in Kansas City off the field? 
so far. I'm sure you're, you still might be unpacking for all I know, getting used to things. How are things going for you in KC? How's it treating you? That, that's actually funny. I am still actually unpacking all the things around, but um, it's good, man. You know, I like it. You know, nice, nice, nice little town. You know, I've yet to try some barbecue yet. I got to get out and get some barbecue, but I mean, other than that, man, it seems like good people, um, you know, really friendly environment and um, can't wait to, uh, Hopefully I'll be here a very long time, you know? Yeah. Last thing I have to ask this. I know you're going to give me the very business-like professional answer, but I'm going to ask this shit anyway, man. So <laughs> you grow up in Buffalo, okay? Obviously you grew up a Bills fan and you're playing for the Kansas City Chiefs right now. You're in the playoffs. It's certainly looking like the Buffalo Bills are going to be in the playoffs, although that's not a done deal yet. They still have to win another game. But have you right. thought about potentially the possibility that whether you're the two seed, the three seed, the four seed, whatever you may end up being, that you may line up in Arrowhead Stadium and you might be going against the team that you grew up watching, the Buffalo Bills. <laughs> yeah, that'd be uh, that'd be special, no doubt, if that happened. You know, I would love to have have that happen. You know, um, yeah, like you said, grew up a Bills fan, and you know, Bills Mafia, all that good stuff, but. You know, they didn't draft me. They had a, they had an opportunity to draft. They didn't draft me. So, you know, if I get the opportunity to line up again, you know, just just go out there and compete and, you know, give it my best effort. You keep that chip on your shoulder. I love it. Mm-hmm. All right, everyone. Bishop Time in high school, University at Buffalo, Kansas City Chiefs, defensive end, Damone Harris. Thanks so much for coming on again. Follow Damone, by the way. What is it? At Damone Harris. Great follow, yep. great person. Uh, listen, man, Buffalo is very happy for you. I'm sure fans all around are, but I can promise you plenty of support and love coming from Buffalo. Congratulations, man. Oh, Keep God. up the good work. Yes, sir. That segment was brought to you by 26 Shirts. At 26 Shirts, a different Buffalo theme design is sold every two weeks. Here's the best part. For every single shirt sold, a donation is made either to a local family that's in need or to a worthy charity. Since 2013, their designs have managed to raise and donate, get this number, folks, over $650,000. Del Reed and his crew, they do such an amazing job enriching the lives of many people. Great to see. Not to mention, these are outstanding looking design shirts. They're very comfortable, very sporty to wear. Head over to 26shirts.com and see what cause needs you this week. All right, I'm now joined by Jeff Boyd from the 716 Sports Podcast. Been a couple weeks, man. How you doing, Jeff? What's up? Oh, man, I'm good. I was down in your neck of the woods for a little bit there, but back home and made it home in time to watch some some build, big Bills and Sabres action. Made it to the Bandit season opener on Saturday. Big Buffalo sports weekend. I got to tell you, I'm kind of proud of myself, Jeff, because I am in chronic, whether it's somebody who listens to this podcast regularly or if they just know me in real life, I am pretty much a chronic overreactor, a knee-jerk reactor. I kind of lose my shit. I get too low when they lose and I get too high when they win. Always the case, especially with my sports teams. But I got to be honest with you, man. I'm kind of a little bit even keel. We're taping this Monday night, of course, for a Tuesday release. And this game's, oh, what, 24? seven hours or so in the books. And I'm really calm about it. I'm not, I mean, I'm obviously disappointed that the bills lost, but I'm not really that upset. I don't know if it's because they played them very close. I mean, at the end of the day, 
and we'll talk about some of the things they did wrong. But at the end of the day, dude, they're in the position to tie the game. They're in the red zone in the final minute, 59 minutes in the game, and they're a one-score deficit against Baltimore, who many people think are the best team in the, definitely in the AFC, if not the entire NFL. I don't like moral victories. I kind of hate that phrase. In fact, in the, on this podcast last week, I said, throw away that statement, bullshit, moral victories. This was an opportunity for Buffalo. They didn't take advantage of it. But my point is, I'm not really that upset about it. It didn't move the needle that much to me on how good or bad I think the Bills are. What about you? I mean, I think you mentioned that they, they played a competitive football game with a team uh, that is on a nine-game winning streak, has been basically unstoppable, coming off a win over a very good San Francisco team. And really, this is a game that was one possession away, one late play, a couple more things go your way, and they could have won this football game. You cert- you would prefer the, the victory to the moral victory. Uh, but in terms of what they had to do, I think this showed a lot of what this team can be. It proved that they can hang with the team that is going to be in the playoffs, a team that a lot of people consider to be a Super Bowl team. So if they can go out and play a competitive one-score game with this team, I think it goes to show that this team really belongs in the conversation for you know not just a team that's going to make the playoffs, but for a team that can win a playoff game, compete with the teams that are going to be in the AFC playoffs. You know, because you said that, and I'm glad you did. And by the way, John Harbaugh, you know, a lot of credit to the Bills after the game said that it feels like they're one of the better teams in the NFL. But because you said that, like in 2017, and I kind of feel like you would agree with this, we were just happy for the Bills to end a drought and get into the playoffs. Even if that Jacksonville in the first round, there was kind of a cup of coffee appearance in the playoffs where the offense laid an egg, but whatever. Point being is that they made the playoffs. This team, I think, at least I think they are anyway right now. I could be wrong. and We'll find out a lot more about them in the next, say, two weeks. But I feel like that this is a team where just getting to the playoffs isn't necessarily enough, where I don't think it's um it's unrealistic to have an expectation that they might have more than just a one-and-done kind of team this year when it comes to the playoffs. Again, I didn't overreact, and I'm still not overreacting to the loss, but I did say... If one thing happened that it would really kind of linger and resonate with me more, and that was Kansas City if they were to go on and beat New England later on, which, of course, that did happen. So when you look at it from that regards, you're like, damn, dude, seven points at home against Baltimore, one score game. If they find a way to win, literally they control their own destiny today. And that's kind of the part that eats away at me, maybe even more so than the fact that they're whatever the record is now, they're nine and four. That might eat away at me more than anything else. And New England also lost yesterday. And, and, and New England's not the team that they have been these last few years either. It really feels like that teams have kind of figured out this Patriots team. I think people were surprised at the beginning of the season how good of a team they were defensively. And they still are that good defensively. But I think that there just aren't the weapons on offense that he's had, that Brady and, and Belichick have had these last few years. You, know, you don't have a guy like Rob Gronkowski down the middle of the field. You tried Antonio Brown on the outside, and that blew up in their face. And now it's basically just teams are learning to double Julian Edelman and make Brady go to Dorsett and Nikhil Harry and Jacoby Myers. And these guys are not making plays for him. And all of a sudden, Brady and this team becomes a, you know, you score 25, 24, 25 points, and you beat the Patriots, which is crazy to think about. Makes me feel, not to look too far ahead, but it makes me feel a little bit better about that second Bills-Patriots matchup we got coming up here in a, in a couple of weeks. But as far as the the Bills and where they look in the playoffs, I would agree. A couple of years ago, this was a team that 
no one expected. I don't think even whether they'll admit it or not. Coach McDermott and Brandon Bean did not expect to be coming in here year one and for that to be a playoff team. They're still trying to get their system, their players, their type of player and all that in here. And they found themselves in the playoffs because of a Nandy Dalton, Tyler Boyd touchdown. They, they didn't even have anything to do about it in a game they were not playing in. But here this year, now they're making their own path. They're getting there on their own merits. And unlike that team that went to Jacksonville and hung up three points in a very winnable game in the playoffs, this team feels like, as demonstrated yesterday, that they can go to any city against any team and they're going to compete. They're, they're, whether or not they win every game, that's a different question, but they will always go out there and compete. And there hasn't been a single team in the AFC this year that has been able to really have their way with the Buffalo Bills. The Patriots won a game, a very close game against the Bills. The Ravens win a close game against the Bills. We'll see Pittsburgh now on Sunday night. We'll see how they play against the Bills. But in terms of, you know, maybe you benefit from the AFC being a little bit of the weaker conference, but it's hard to really say that the Bills are an underdog against anyone they might meet in the playoffs. If that's, Kansas City or Tennessee or Houston, whoever that may be, do any of those teams really seem like they have an advantage, a significant advantage anywhere over the Buffalo Bills? I would argue that they don't. I think this is a Bills team that has continued to improve, and I would agree with your statement that you know just making it to the playoffs doesn't really feel like you know that that's not the goal, that's not the bar that's been set for this team. This team feels like it can make some noise. Yeah, I agree. And the difference between the 2017 team and this team, besides talent is that a couple of years ago, it was kind of like, whoa, you know, we can kind of backdoor our way in here. The Bills have been good since the first week this season. And maybe before the season, if I told you the Bills are going to be a playoff team, you'd be surprised. But after four or five weeks, I don't think it was a surprise at all. In terms of this Baltimore team, we both agreed. And I'm sure pretty much everyone listening is going to agree. They're one of, if not the best teams in the NFL right now. And at the end of the day, and there were a lot of things that did not go well for Buffalo. And we'll hit on at least a couple of those. But for me, this game ultimately came down to two moments in two plays. And that was the difference of the game. Number one, that strip sack fumble on Josh Allen that turned into Baltimore's second touchdown. That was a very, very big play in the game. And then the other thing was that blown coverage between Poyer and Hyde. It looked like it was Poyer who got beat, but we don't know the scheme. Maybe it might have been a call. Regardless, it was definitely clearly a blown coverage because Hayden Hurst got wide open, took a short pass, and goes 61 yards for a touchdown. That was that one big explosive play that you kind of got that feeling that if either team could hit on a big explosive play, that might, might be the difference in the game. And certainly that was on Sunday. So I think those were the two big plays that really kind of defined why the Bills ultimately lost this game. There are other reasons that we're going to talk about, but those are the two big ones to me anyway. And it's funny because you can watch this team all year long and pick out really now one big blown coverage. Our secondary has been just right. You know, it, it sucks whether it was Poyer or Hyde or whoever it happens over the course of a year, someone's going to get schemed open. Someone's going to miss something. It sucks that it leads to, to that kind of touchdown. But I mean, there are teams out there in the NFL that you can watch a game and every week you see two or three guys just get beat badly downfield. I don't think we should, for, should take for granted. You kind of, get used to it and maybe you don't notice it, but take for granted how good this bill secondary has been and how very rarely really anyone is just left open or anyone is given what Hurst had in terms of making that play downfield, because I really can't think of anything else this year where there was a guy who had that much space to work um, into the bill secondary. Yeah, I agree. And the secondary has been phenomenal. 
But it's the kind of game where, and also, it was early in the third quarter. I mean, it's not like the Bills didn't have plenty of time to regroup from that. I'm certainly not blaming the secondary. That's the last thing on this team that we would, either of us would put any blame on for losing the game. But it was a big play. And when it comes to Josh Allen, look, let's, actually, you know what? Let's start with the good here. This is why, maybe this is the reason why when I told you when we started this segment that I'm not really too down right now, it's because I've seen him bounce back well from when he's had bad games. Like I thought he stunk against New England and I kind of thought he stunk against Philadelphia and he came back both times and, and played good football. He kind of, it feels like Josh Allen learns from his mistakes and his bad games. And I don't see any reason why that can't be the case again next week in Pittsburgh. So that's the good, but on the bad, I mean, dude, he was awful. There's other factors and we'll hit on a couple of those, but at the end of the day, your quarterback has to play better, and he just did not get done. He was not good on Sunday. There's no way to defend him, and I don't care how big of a Josh Allen guy you are, and we both are to a certain extent anyway. He just wasn't good. Yeah, and, and there were two things in particular that really um, stood out to me about his performance. Number one, it felt like there were chances early in the game to hit on downfield passes, and he just could not get it dialed in. Uh, it looked like he dialed in a little bit later on and then just couldn't connect with his receivers. Uh, some drops there certainly didn't help his cause, but there were a couple plays early on in that football game where he had receivers open downfield. I remember Foster on one play and maybe it was Brown on the other where they got behind their guy and there was some room over the top. If he dropped is if he's able to drop that pass in, that's a big play. And they never really did get that big play until maybe that knocks catch towards the end of the game. Secondly, it really felt like Baltimore just kind of figured him out a little bit. They just kept blitzing him and, I would be worried, especially going against Pittsburgh now, and then you've got New England as well, two very good defenses. If it if the game plan is just send a lot of people at Josh Allen and he becomes ineffective, every team in the NFL is just going to start sending seven guys at him every play until he proves that they're able to you know still move the ball with that level of pressure. Because I think Baltimore blitzed him, I, I believe it was 30 times yesterday, and they just had him completely scrambling around. Now Baltimore has guys like Matthew Judon who are, excellent pass rushers that's not your your run-of-the-mill kind of guy there on the edge but it felt like the more pressure that was on Allen the quicker his mental clock was the less accurate he was the decisions he was making were not maybe the right decisions so I'd be curious to see what they're able to do and what he's able to do if they go to Pittsburgh again on Sunday night and the plan from the Steelers known for being an innovative blitzing defense is just, well, let's just send a bunch of pressure at Josh Allen and, and see if he can respond to it. Yeah, to your first point, it was John Brown. It was actually the third play of the game. The Bills got the ball to start the game, and Brown got behind the secondary, and Allen missed him. That actually could have been a touchdown, so the Bills could have been up 7 nothing right away. To your second point, this is a copycat league. Sean McDermott acknowledged that during the Monday press conference that what Baltimore did worked and that he, he expects other teams do the same going forward until... They proved that they could beat it. I wanted to read this set of numbers, and I got to give credit to uh, Marcel-Louis Jacques from ESPN.com, who covers the Bills for them. He came out with these, and he tweeted this out. This is alarming, and this is scary. Here were some numbers from Allen on Sunday. One of 11 when passing the ball for 15 yards or more downfield. 0 for 11 outside of the pocket. Once he got outside of that pocket, he was 0 for 11. All were under duress. Um, one for 16 when he was under pressure in general. And you said it, he was blitzed. It was 30 times. He was blitzed 30 times and he completed just 29% of the, 
of those passes. He was just seven for 24 when they were blitzed. They blitzed him heavy. They blitzed him often. They forced him to make quick one-on-one throws decisively. He didn't get it done. I mean, it's the next thing that he's going to have to learn how to conquer if he wants to continue to progress towards being a very good NFL quarterback. You just talked about Pittsburgh. They're very good. At least they are certainly on defense for sure. I guess it comes down to what is your level of confidence right now in being completely objective about it that Josh Allen can and will bounce back from this type of game because you know pressure is going to be coming. He has to be better. But also, too, and this is uh, kind of one of the other points we need to get to, dude, his receivers did not do him a lot of favors either. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah, and there were certainly plays to be made that Allen did make, and the receivers have to catch that ball. It, it wasn't just Allen on the offense that left some things on the table. Uh, Knox needs to be able to make the, make the easy catches and not just the tough catches. Um, there were a number of players who had a ball that was in their hands, and they just could not haul it in. So, yeah, that's something you would like to see, of course, is that you know when Allen does make that play, that someone else is there to, there to help him out because if he's only hitting – 29% of his passes under duress and you get one of those 29% that's accurate, you damn well better catch it or else you're going to put your team in even a worse spot than they already were in terms of moving the ball down the field. Uh, I think you mentioned it historically here this season, Allen has responded very well to bad games. The Pittsburgh game is going to be tough. I would make the statement and I will back up my statement about the Patriots. I think the Steelers game is the toughest game the Bills have left. I'm not super concerned about New England. I'm only concerned about them because of history, not because of the team that exists in Foxborough right now. And I'm not at all worried about the Jets. I think the Pittsburgh game is the toughest game on the schedule. You have a Steelers team that all the credit in the world to Mike Tomlin for somehow getting this team to where they are right now. I think a lot of people around the league kind of looked and laughed when they traded that first round pick for Minka Fitzpatrick here this season. And now all of a sudden, this is a team that's sixth in a playoff spot sixth seed in the AFC and they are making tons of noise now. And really, if it wasn't this season where Baltimore was being such a juggernaut, this is a team that could be running away with the AFC North in a couple of weeks. So it's going to be a tough matchup. Pittsburgh's secondary and defense is excellent. Um, I would agree that their offense is not spectacular. I'd be curious to see if they have Juju Smith Schuster and James Conner, both healthy and active for that game. Cause that certainly changes the dynamic because now they got, Deontay Johnson is over there emerging over the last few weeks as a a solid number two receiver. And they finally figured out how to use James Washington as that number three. So the offense is kind of rounded out here and it's a team that's going to be at home. It's going to be a primetime game. You need something from the offense. I don't think you have to go out there and put up 30 points to beat Pittsburgh, but I do think you have to be able to comfortably get 20, 24, 27 points in that range to win that game. I think the way that you do it is kind of utilize, like Strong McDermott says, is a copycat league. If teams want to come out and blitz Josh Allen, fine. Hit him with a screen game. Hit him with a misdirection. Try to use their downfield aggression against them. I think this is a team with players like Devin Singletary, Isaiah McKenzie, John Brown, Cole Beasley in the short passing game as well. You can have a short passing game, try to get players upfield, get action in behind them. Maybe even TJ Yeldon gets on the field for this game. If you want to try to change some personnel, he's a very good receiving running back. I know he's been kind of AWOL here over these last few weeks, but this is not going to be a Frank Gore to the middle of the defensive line, hammering it in kind of football game for the Bills. I think this is a game you got to utilize your speed. 
Because if you just let Josh sit back there, especially in who knows how injured that foot was, I wonder if maybe that impacted his out-of-the-pocket passing stats. It's weird to see him be 0 for 11 outside the pocket. That is a place where he has thrived at points here this season. If he's going to be back there, especially if he's not 100%, just let guys like TJ Watt tee off on him. You're not doing him any favors. Let's use the players that we have. I'm confident that Josh can win this game, but he's going to need a little bit of help from those around him. I want to talk about Pittsburgh a little bit more in just a minute. I kind of want to circle back to an issue that I don't, I don't want to say it reared its ugly head, but one of the things that we've talked about and you hear a lot about early in the season is, well, the Bills don't have a number one wide receiver. Has not been a problem in quite a while. John Brown's played fantastic this season. Cole Beasley's come on of late. But you do have to wonder, a game like this Ravens game on Sunday where nobody seems to be able to make a play. And of course, you know, to be fair, Josh Allen didn't exactly put all these passes in a position for these guys to to succeed. But John Brown only has three catches for 26 yards. Beasley four for 29. Although he did have a touchdown. Do you feel like sometimes it's games like this where you do have a valid point if you're to question if the Bills need to go out and get themselves a true number one wide receiver? Although to be honest with you, I really don't think there's a lot of those. There's a lot of teams in the NFL that don't have that quote unquote number one. But you kind of, I think if you're a critic of that and that's your stance, I think like this is the kind of game where uh, it builds your case that they could really use somebody else. I think I, I think there's certainly a player to be had, but I agree with what you said. I think you can count the teams on one hand that have a true number one receiver in the traditional sense. I mean, the, the Julio Jones and DeAndre Hopkins of the world are a dying breed over these last couple of years. Now this is a very deep wide receiver draft, so it might not be the worst place for the Bills to look because there's going to be a number of really good players available probably into the second and even third round who might be first round talents in other years. So that's a place for them to look. But at this point, for me, if Josh Allen still can't dial in that 15 to 20 yard passing game, it doesn't matter if you have a guy who can get down the field. Josh has to be able to fix his downfield accuracy because if he's going to go over 11, it doesn't matter if it's DeAndre Hopkins out there that's getting overthrown or whether it's Duke Williams out there getting overthrown. If they're getting overthrown, it doesn't matter. Um, I think it's just for Josh continuing to work on that deep ball accuracy. I think John Brown is maybe not a traditional number one receiver, but he has been, he's putting up number one receiver stats here this season. Um, I would love another guy to kind of flesh out that receiving core. Um, but in the meantime, if Josh cannot hit that downfield ball, I'm not convinced that going out and getting another guy to be the, the downfield threat. I don't know that that changes too much for this offense. Yeah, that's a fair point. And look, well, whether it happens or not in the off season, is another question, but right now the Bills got what they got, and you talked about Pittsburgh being a very tough opponent. I want to read a tweet that Sal Capaccio from WGR had because I it resonated very well with me. He says, next week's not going to be a picnic for the Bills. The Steelers lead the NFL in takeaways, our second in interceptions, our third in sacks per pass attempt, and our 28-9 and nine in primetime games at Heinz Field, including 12-3 and three in their last 15. That's a tough task, man. That's a really tough task. And this is an important game coming up. And I feel like by the direction we're talking already, we kind of both are, we're on to Pittsburgh to quote Bill Belichick here. The Baltimore game is what it is. I've said from 
I don't know, at least a couple weeks now that I think Pittsburgh was probably the biggest game on the schedule for lots of reasons. One of them being, first of all, if the Bills win, they're in the playoffs. That's the biggest reason. But number two, a win also guarantees them the fifth seed. I think there's a big difference between the fifth and the sixth seed personally because I'd much rather go into the AFC South into their house in the wild card round, which is either going to be Houston or Tennessee, it looks like right now, as opposed to playing Kansas City in the first round. Or hell, man, the way it's going, maybe even New England. Now, you talked about it, and I agree with you. They're not the powerhouses that they were even a year ago. They are beatable, but I'd still much rather take my chances against an AFC South team. So I feel like this game carries a lot of significance for a lot of reasons, but very tough Pittsburgh team. By the way, Mike Tomlin, coach of the year, he has to be, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, this is a team that has Le'Veon Bell both sit out and then leave the organization. Antonio Brown is gone. I I think everyone's looking at Pittsburgh and wondering what they're doing and down to their third quarterback on top of it, which is not something they had planned with the injury to Roethlisberger. He's got a a third string quarterback, fourth string quarterback, technically, because they traded Josh Thompson Jacksonville early on in the season. They've had, they've been without Connor. They've been without Smith Schuster. And somehow, some way, this team week in and week out has has performed. And I think the reason why it's such a tough game was on display. I'm a big NFL red zone guy when the Bills aren't on. So I'm watching NFL red zone on on Sunday, the four o'clock game window. And they're playing in Arizona. And that entire lower bowl is Steelers fans. There's terrible towels taking over a stadium in Glendale, Arizona. I think that's just a great home field advantage. And primetime games bring out the best in terms of fans and home field advantage and just the feeling in a city. Every time we get a game here in Buffalo, I know everyone feels it's, it's something different. It's something special. The primetime audience, the lights are on. It's a tough place to go play. One thing I feel really good about Jeff Cohen in the Sunday night is that Pittsburgh's offense is no dynamo. And obviously either is Buffalo's. And if that's the case, I like the Buffalo defense. I like their chances against anybody, and maybe that's what, more than anything else, has me still feeling reasonably confident, even after losing to Baltimore on Sunday, is I thought the defense did a very respectable job against one of the best offenses in football. I think Baltimore was leading the NFL coming into the game and scoring, and a quarterback who, even if he does get hurt at this point, he still might win MVP at this point. I think he might have locked it up by this point. I mean... Pedestrian numbers, he did have three touchdown passes. Two of them were short ones that could have easily been runs. I don't think he did that much against Buffalo. They held him the 40 yards rushing on 11 carries. Ingram only had 50 yards rushing on 15 carries. The the thought was the Bills were struggling against the run, and Baltimore's the best running team in the league, and they were going to come in and run all over him. Definitely not the case at all. That's the one thing that I really take with me going into these last three weeks is that this defense could play well enough. Sure. The Bills don't go into Pittsburgh. They're not going to run up 35 points, but you know what? Neither are the Steelers. Yeah, I mean, this this defense that the Bills have had, especially the one that's come out to play here these last couple of weeks against a couple of really good offenses on top of that, it feels like they should be able to take away what Pittsburgh does. I mean, Devlin Hodges, to his credit, is having a pretty good year for a guy who wasn't supposed to be anything. Um, but still, this is a guy that you should be able to – you've got – maybe the best safety duo in the NFL. You've got one of the best shutdown corners in the NFL. Tremaine Edmonds had a great game on Sunday. Milano had a pretty good game, although he's going to wish he had that one highlight of uh, Lamar faking him out of his, uh, his shoes back from making his way around Twitter today. I thought Shaq Lawson was fantastic. 
Uh, Jerry Hughes looked like he was amped up and had a nice sack there at Oliver's coming along. It's, it's a good defense and it feels like this is a, a very pedestrian Pittsburgh offense. This might be a really boring tight of 13 to seven kind of football game, but I feel like the bills can pretty much keep this Pittsburgh offense under wraps as long as they do what they're capable of. Last thing here, and maybe it works out that even if the bills somehow, some way lost all three of their last final games that they would end up in the playoffs anyway. But let's just play skeptic here quickly. If Pittsburgh does win at home and we just outlined how good this team is in prime time, and you talked about the prime time factor of playing at home, and let's just say New England does what they always do to the Bills, winning Foxborough. You're talking nine wins going into week 17 at home against an inferior Jets team. But do you feel like that noose around the neck is going to be pretty strong? We've seen stranger things happen. In the NFL, if it comes down to the Bills needing to win in week 17, what's your worry level going to be? I don't care how shitty the Jets are. Uh, it, it's astronomical at that point. And it's not all this 2019 Bills team's fault. It's just you live here, you watch this Bills organization over the years. They have dropped everything in front of them, basically. And the Bills did the reverse to the Jets just a few years ago where all the Jets had to do was beat a Bills team that wasn't going anywhere and make the playoffs. And Rex Ryan and the Bills went out and they knocked the Jets right out of the playoffs. So, you know, there'd be some motivation on the other side. Uh, it's a divisional matchup. The Jets played the Bills really well week one. Uh, that game is way behind us now when these teams are very different. But that game was a C.J. Mosley injury away from maybe being radically different. The Bills able to, to climb back late, but they could not get out of the starting blocks. So I think at that point, it would be a stressful game. I do still think the Bills win that football game, but I think the the stress levels of Buffalo Bills fans around the world uh, would be sky high if they needed to win to get in with that game. And the scary part is, it's very realistic that it could happen. Really is, if you think about it. Again, I, I, I there's something about this Steelers team that really scares me. I keep going back to them. I do agree with you, though. They could win the game, and I also do think the Bills are capable. Look, I'm not impressed with the New England Patriots. I'm really not. I almost would rather play them if you had a choice right now, and then we'll move on to the Sabres after this, but I'm going to ask you this. If you had a choice right now in the playoffs to play, how are the teams that you wanted to play in the playoffs? Let's assume that Baltimore is not going to be playing in the first round, okay? So if you were to have your choice of the Patriots in Foxborough, the... um. Kansas City Chiefs in Arrowhead or Houston in whatever hell stadium that they play in. Assuming that they win the division, they're playing Tennessee twice. So who knows how that plays out to end the year. But those are the three teams. Of them, who would you want to play the least in the first round? Kansas City. Um, I think that this is a down year for them compared to last year. But I want absolutely nothing to do with Kansas City in the playoffs, especially in Arrowhead. Um, with Mahomes getting healthy. With Tyreek Hill being back healthy, there's just the big play potential on that offense. They have maybe three, they, they might have the three fastest guys in the NFL all playing receiver in the same scheme. It's ridiculous. And they, they're going to test you up and down the field. They got a competent pass rushing defense that I would be, I would play New England or Houston 10 times out of 10 before I wanted anything to do with the Chiefs. I think you're just saying that because the Damone Harris was on the podcast earlier. I mean, slight bias. I wanted to wanted to tee up for that and circle back and complete the nice circle of the show. But no, I think Kansas <laughs> City's way ahead of where Houston. Houston, yes, we're recording Monday night. Houston 
was scared me a little bit until they got shellacked by Denver. So I think they're falling back down to earth a little bit. I, they might not even be the team. Tennessee controls their own destiny place. Houston twice. It might very well be the Titans in a music city miracle rematch. Yeah, I agree. It's going to be interesting. It's going to be fun. I'm very much looking forward to Sunday night in prime time. Before we wrap up, I want to spend at least a couple minutes talking about the Sabres. They go to Edmonton on Sunday night. They win in overtime three, two Colin Miller, who's been a healthy scratch lately. He nets the winner. They go 1-1-1 on this three-game road trip. Points in seven of their last nine games. Guess what, Jeff? I'm reading off notes right now because I'm going to be completely and utterly honest with you. I did watch maybe two-thirds of that Edmonton game, but I have not been watching much Sabres hockey lately. Fill me in a little bit. We know that they started out hot. We know that they kind of went into the cellar, at least briefly, or, or I should say the cooler, because they were playing terrible. They're playing pretty good lately. Educate me a little bit. Educate the listeners a little bit. How's this team looking right now? Well, this team is looking like Jack Eichel is having a superstar caliber season. And we are very lucky that Jack Eichel is a Buffalo Sabre because there is not a whole lot happening around him. Uh, Yesterday's game, the Edmonton game, they get some early goals from Oposo and Larson. Edmonton climbs back into the game. They do get the overtime winner, which is great because they had a disappointing game against Vancouver. On Saturday night, they climb back from 5-3, have a goal disallowed in overtime on a penalty, and allow six goals to the Canucks, which is just just terrible. Allowing six goals to the Vancouver Canucks at this point feels terrible, but it's kind of the same old story. Uh, Sabres, when they get secondary scoring, they are very successful. When they are not, it is turned into the Jack Eichel show, and although he is on a great point streak, he has been playing, I would say, the best consistent hockey of his National Hockey League career, one man can't do it. And it's been better of late. I think they've recovered pretty well from that terrible slump they went on around the uh, the European trip with those dual losses to the Lightning. But still, they're kind of just fighting for position here, find themselves going into this week tied for third in their division, which is a playoff spot. But you got Tampa Bay chasing them, who's got some games in hand. And then you got a Toronto team that, had a coaching change. Who knows what they are? The Canadians, the Panthers right around there as well. It's, it's tough. They're jockeying for position. I think the, the middle depth, and now you look at a guy like Casey Middlestad, he's not in the lineup last night. They continue to have an interesting defensive rotation where a guy like Colin Miller gets a game-winning goal and has been getting healthy scratched more often than not. And still, Pat, we were talking on this podcast over the summer whether or not they'd trade Ristolainen or a defenseman. It's December. And it's the same group. I, I literally, I'm in, I'm in disbelief that this is the same team, and yet they keep winning some games. And I, I don't know. It's kind of an uncertain time for this hockey team. And the last point I would leave in terms of recapping you to date on the Sabres hockey is I really think it's time for Linus Allmark to just be given the reins. And Carter Hutton has had a rough couple of games. And I would, I would, I think it's the kind of time where I know they've been going with their their timeshare. It's worked, but I think Linus Allmark deserves to be the number one goaltender of this team. Now, when it comes to the defenseman, look, if I'm going to be calling for somebody's head, I would just be biting. I'd be going off Twitter because, again, I'm admitting to you that I haven't really been watching a lot of the games. But obviously, on Twitter, it's pretty much the same thing. Why is McCabe out there? Why is Bogosian out there? Why is a guy like Colin Miller sitting? Do you fall in line with that? And by the way, you're talking about the defenseman still being intact. Darlene's out right now with the concussion. I have no idea when he's going to be back, you have to think at some point he's got to get rid of somebody. But like right now, 
if Jeff Boyd's running this organization right now and you're the one in charge, you're making the decisions, who should be the defenseman or two defensemen if it needs to be that are not on the ice, that are sitting next to you in the press box on game nights? Well, I, I, I've been saying that I think Jake McCabe is a guy who should have gotten traded uh, a couple of months ago. So I would continue to say that I do not think Jake McCabe should be out there playing when everyone else is healthy. He's been not great. I know he's a good locker room guy. He's a locker room leader. There's a lot of respect for him. Some fans like him because he's a physical style player. I just think he's a liability defensively. Um, it should be, I think it should be him and I think it should be Bogosian. I, or at least, at least once Dahlien comes back, I think Marco Scandella has more than earned his ice time. I know that's not a consensus or a popular opinion, but you look at his numbers last year when he was playing with Ristolainen and this year when he's out there with Yoki Haru, I think Marco Scandella is back to his top four defensive form. It is night and day if you look at the analytics of what Marco Scandella has been able to do. I think Scandella and Yoki Haru deserve to be out there. I think Dahlien is, of course, deserving to be out there. Miller should never sit again ahead of McCabe or Bogosian, which is just terrible to me. Um, and then Montour and Ristolainen. Ristolainen's not too bad when they give him limited minutes. I know you you want to you want him to be the number one guy because you drafted him in the first round. I don't think he's a number one guy. I do think he's an NHL caliber defenseman who, when you give him you know 19 minutes a night, can play special teams. I think there's a good role for him. So, I, but I would say that when everyone's healthy, it should be McCabe and Bogosian are the guys that you try to that, that should be sitting down. And if someone gets hurt, you know, put Bogosian out there. I want to make a statement about Jack Eichel and you tell me if I'm off base because very well I may be. And I think there's at least some fans who feel this way. The thing that sucks about this organization right now is you get a guy like Jack Eichel who, I mean, we'll go ahead. We'll consider him a generational talent. He's certainly one of the best players in the NHL at this point. So it takes three or four years for a player like Eichel to reach his prime. I think we're we would agree that he's starting to play in his prime now. So he's entering his prime years. And even a guy who could be a generational guy, they probably have maybe four or five years where they're just in that zone and they're locked in where they're one of a small handful of the best players in the NHL. And then maybe a couple of years after that, you're still a good, very good player, but you're starting to come down. You're not quite what you were. And then the fall off comes. Sometimes it's off a cliff. Sometimes it's a little more gradual, but for a team, you look at this organization and a guy like Eichel right now, who's playing quite possibly just about as good as anybody in the entire NHL. And it just doesn't feel like there's any realistic chance that the Sabres are built right now to do any kind of postseason damage. Is that frustrating as a fan to say, you know what, this is one of his prime years that are just being wasted right now. Or is that kind of like a, a overreactionary statement that that's off base? I don't think it's too much of an overreaction. No, uh, you you drafted him and you tried to build this team so that they were competitive by now because this is the time where you know Eichel, Reinhardt, that generation of Sabres players would be entering into their primes, and Jack certainly has taken that next step. And you look around him, and no one else has taken it with him. Um, I, there's a couple of players on this team. I think Johansson being healthy helps a lot because their center death is terrible when he's out of the lineup. Um, certainly Jeff Skinner is capable. Reinhardt has his moments, but there's just isn't enough. And this is a team that I still think this team can make the playoffs. I don't think they're too far away from making the playoffs. So they figure a couple things out, maybe make a couple of moves, but I would agree that this is a team. I, this is not a Stanley cup team. 
there is no way in the world that I think the team that goes out there on that's last night in Edmonton can win the Stanley Cup. Okay. Doesn't mean they can't make the playoffs, but it is frustrating to see, you know, Jack Eichel might have a hundred point season. He might be at the rate he's going. This is a guy who could be MVP number contention and they're not going to be a contender because they don't have enough built around him yet. So yeah, it is frustrating. I would say. The funny thing is, if the playoffs started right now, we would be having a, a Sabres playoff preview because through their trials and tribulations, at least as this moment when we tape this, the Sabres are in a playoff position or third in the Atlantic division. But as I look at that division, what do you think? Because all right, Boston's running away with that and they're very good. They're not going anywhere. So they're going to stick around. Then you got Florida one point as we tape this again ahead of the Sabres. And then Montreal is two points behind them. And you got Toronto and Tampa. I can see the Sabres as a team. And again, I don't want to try to, to act like I'm really locked in on this team and I'm watching all the games and I'm watching all these other teams play because I would be a phony if I did that. But I see a team like Florida and I see a team like Montreal and I'm like, there's no reason to me why the Sabres can't stay with them or even ahead of them for the balance of the season. But then you look right behind that. And again, Tampa Bay's six in the division. They're also only three points behind the Sabres for third. Toronto and especially Tampa Bay, you got to figure that sooner or later, they're going to start playing a lot better hockey. So realistically speaking, are the Sabres going to be able to hang in the top three of that Atlantic division over the course, the balance of a season? That's what it comes down to, right? Absolutely. And it's tough because Tampa has that really slow start to the season and they play Buffalo. They get four out of four points against the Sabres in Sweden. And now you know, you really had a chance to open up a big gap between you and Tampa Bay, and they didn't take it. So I really do think ultimately Boston is in a class of their own in this division. I think Boston wins the division, and they might be done with a couple weeks left in the, in the season before they, with, without even having to look back at anyone. They are a dynamite team this year. They have been very impressive, especially offensively with guys like Pasternak and Marchand and Bergeron, what they've been able to do. Tampa Bay's a really solid number two, and then you find yourselves in the unenviable position of, I mean, I don't think the Panthers are great, but they're certainly a team that's kind of on par with where Buffalo is. Toronto has the talent. They haven't been able to put it on the ice consistently, but they have the talent to be a playoff team. It's you, You've got to find something that you can do consistently that puts you ahead of Florida, Montreal, and Toronto. Because those are all teams. Montreal has kind of rebuilt their core and done it much quicker than Buffalo was able to. Toronto gets Matthews, Marner, and Nylander. They rebuild quicker than the Sabres do. And, and Florida, I mean, they give the big contract to Bobrovsky. And still guys like Barkov and Huberdo and all them are going out there and making things happen. It's, it's a team, yeah, it's certainly, you find yourself in a, a swarm of teams. I don't think Buffalo was really that far off. That's why I don't think that them making the playoffs is so far out of the question, but this is a team. If, if they had like a better third line or they had slightly better goaltending that it could be enough to make this a playoff team. They're right on the cusp of it, but they need someone else to step up because it's become the Jack Eichel show, which is fine. Like, you want your star player to be able to win your games, but you don't want your star player to turn into Connor McDavid from two years ago where he's scoring hat tricks and losing hockey games. It's got to be a team effort, and whether it's Reinhardt or Milstad or VC or whoever, which of these guys who's out there on the ice and needs to be given something because they're 
I don't see this team ultimately finishing ahead of Toronto, Tampa Bay, maybe even Florida, if they keep going down the same path and playing the same way that they are. It sounds to me like maybe the person who needs to step up is Jason Bottrell and make a couple moves to get a couple more good second or third line fours on this team somehow. I mean, that would be ideal. I mean, I think everyone knows, too, that he's in a spot where he has to make a move. And if everyone knows you're you're a buyer, your your price suddenly goes up very significantly. So I, I guess for, for Botterill, your hope becomes that someone finds themselves in a situation where they have an excess of forwards or that one of your defensemen, who is not your main core guys, whether that's McCabe or Bogosian or really whoever he wants to unload, Maybe one of those guys starts playing some really good hockey and uh, improves his trade value a little bit because I think he's in a position where everyone knows he needs a forward and no one's going to cut him a deal or you know they're trying to get a little extra out of him. But if if at a certain point you get to where man like man if this team had a little more forward depth that could make the playoffs, you might just have to suck it up and take a deal that's a little bit less than you would like to take. You might just have to be willing to to lose a trade on paper so that you never have to play seven defensemen because you only have 11 healthy forwards in your organization again this year because that was a train wreck of a couple of the games. And it's embarrassing that a team gets built this close to the salary cap but finds themselves unable to f- to field a full 12 forwards underneath the salary cap at the same time. So I would hope that there's something looming. We've been hearing rumors about a trade in the works for, I think, eight or nine months now going back to last year for guys like Ristolainen that were still waiting to see what happens. They're all still here. Maybe it is just one trade. If Botterill's got something he's, he can do, I hope that he, he goes out and does it because it might just be that mid-six forward death. I think the top is good. Your fourth line's been great. Larson and Mabozo and Gergensen's have been great. So just find a little more in the middle. Get a little more scoring, and maybe you can make a little more noise. And hopefully Omar continues to play well. That'll be a big key as well. All right, good stuff as always. Give Jeff a follow on Twitter at JeffBoyd716. 716 Sports Podcast comes out every Tuesday, available wherever podcasts are found. And thanks for having me again, Pat. Always fun to be on here with you. All right, boys and girls, that is going to do it for another episode. Very big thank you again, Damone Harris. Could not be happier for Damone. Hard work pays off, and he is living testament to that. So happy for him. Great to hear from him. Also to my man, Jeff Boyd from the 716 Sports Podcast. Always like talking Bills and Sabres with him. Coming up on Friday's show, I'm going to have Doran Dickerson on with me. Doran formerly played for the Buffalo Bills, of course. Tight end. Now works in Pittsburgh in the media. We'll talk about that very big Buffalo Bills-Pittsburgh Steelers game looming on Sunday you caught up with to what Dorn's been up to plenty more with him coming up on Friday guys if you have not done so already please go ahead subscribe to this podcast rate and review all that fun stuff really helps me continue to grow this show tremendously also go on YouTube hit up the Analytics podcast YouTube channel I got highlight clips from episodes up there as well as some original audio content that you'll only find on our YouTube channel so hit that up and of course don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Pamoran Tweets. I'm constantly tweeting out updates, upcoming guests, polls, prize pack giveaways, thoughts, fighting with people on there, all kinds of other stuff going on. So Twitter, at Pamoran Tweets. 
And last thing, and I, I save this for last every time because it's the most important thing to me. I got to thank you all very, very much for listening. I appreciate each and every single one of you that take time from your day to give this show a listen. It means the world to me. Really, truly does. So thank you very much. Have a good week. And I'll be back with the new show on Friday. I'll catch you on the flippity flip. Bye.